honest or not, but we got a lot more questions than we have, than we have time for. <laughs> so it will be interesting to see what unfolds. And what this reminds me of is, um, believe it or not, uh, when I, in another life, I was a park ranger in um, one of the national parks. This is when I was doing my butch thing. <laughs> and <laughs> and Inevitably, you know, you would go on a nature walk and you would be describing the flowers and all this stuff. And inevitably, there would be several people who would try to stump the ranger. <laughs> so this feels a little bit on this side like, <laughs> but that's fine. That's fine. So we'll see. Mm, so. Uh, with all the uh, knowledge, I'm just going to read the question. I'm not, I'm not necessarily going to answer it, but <laughs> with, <laughs> with all the knowledge and wisdom the Dharma provides, sometimes it feels like what is being suggested, what is being suggested is to reach Nibbana and attain peace and enlightenment is a life of renunciation and reclusiveness giving up all attachments to people, places, things, etc. Does this mean those who choose to live in the secular world with all its ills and ailments can never attain peace or enlightenment or reach Nibbana? That's a great question. <laughs> It's my belief, and it's my experience, and it's, and it's the way that I've absorbed the teachings, that, that these teachings are not about separating the absolute from the relative. It's, you know, the, the, even, even from the very moment that the Buddha created the intentional spiritual community, he did not, the instructions are not to go off on your own and achieve some state of mind that was separate from everybody else's. He created an um, a, a interwoven network of, of community in which the, um, the monastic community <clears throat> supported the lay community through, through the spiritual teachings and the support. And yet, on a day-to-day -day basis, the lay community had to support the monastic container because the monastics would literally walk for their food. They would take a bowl a little smaller than this, <laughs> but not much. And they would walk at dawn for their food every day because monastics are not allowed to uh, cook for themselves. They're not allowed to store food overnight, and they're not allowed to buy food. And so the connection with this world is woven into um, the practice on a day-to-day -day basis. How we bring these teachings into the reality of our lives is our practice. 
it's not we're not trying to achieve something that that is this 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 idealized perfection we are actually living our um, sometimes very messy lives with as much clarity and openness and kindness as possible and that's you know that would be my answer to that question that it is really woven into the fabric of the practice and that that our individual sense of freedom is so directly tied with our collective freedom um, i was i was in an interview today in which um, the subject of, of of this came up and and that we cannot we we cannot um, uh, search for peace or transform the world into the peaceful world that we see it being without being peaceful ourselves. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase Sayadaw Upendita, but he said that practicing mindfulness is creating peaceful little worlds in each of us. Create trying to create <coughs> peace in the larger world with raised fists and clenched, uh, clenched, raised arms and clenched fists is something to think about. Because there has to be a congruity between the internal and the external experience. It's a great question. I don't have any clever stories about being a park ranger. <laughs> My secret life was as a lawyer. <laughs> so don't argue with that. <laughs> when observing the Vedanas, I find that when I examine neutral sensations more deeply, I find them incredibly satisfying and also sometimes the unpleasant. It is like living itself, being aware, is intensely joyful, even when uncomfortable. Insight, delusion, honeymoon period. <laughs> so you will find that mindfulness leads sometimes to some incredibly joyful states of mind. So what's, what may be a little bit surprising about this question is uh, examining neutral sensations more deeply, he or she finds them incredibly satisfying and it's, it's a kind of um, uh, unexpected result and I think that that's, uh, that's part of what happens with mindfulness is that, uh, for instance, unpleasant experiences that we thought were unbearable, unpleasant experiences that uh, for most of our lives we turn away from, we run away from, we push away, we think that's not where I want to go, that when we work with, uh, with mindfulness, 
with whatever is arising, whether it's, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, what we find is that our concepts about feelings, our concepts about, or, or our ideas about what things are like, have sometimes very little to do with what the direct experience of feelings, of um, uh, uh, emotions, of thoughts, of sensations in the body, we find that our direct experience is a very different, um, uh, very different thing from the ideas that we have about them. So it's not, it's not at all deluded uh, to think that if we turn to Vedana, even though it may be neutral and before we thought that it was um, boring or uh, not worth, not worthy of our attention, uh, that when we, when we turn to it, we find indeed that most of our experiences are not one dimensional, but there are many dimensions to our experience and uh, many jewels within those experiences that heretofore when we were Ah, that was a legal expression. That when <laughs> sorry about that. When, that before, when we were when we were ignoring it, you know, it looked like it was um, just a you know just a you know a one-dimensional kind of experience. That suddenly we see many different levels and um, many different aspects that before uh, we just ignored. So I would say, yes, this is an insight, and that one should be very careful um, in thinking that because we've had an insight by turning to an experience, that the next time we turn to the very same experience, we'll have the same insight or another insight, because that was a moment that is now gone, and that each moment and each turning, each, each moment of mindfulness yields beautiful surprises and when we have expectations about what we'll find or what we'll see, we miss the jewel. So to, um, to, to see it, to know it, to reflect on it, to understand it, and then to let it go. Try not to choose one that I've already read through. Okay, here we go. Oh wait, not this one. This actually was this actually was one we meant to take out. <laughs> Sorry. All right, here we go. Okay, a lot of what comes up for me while meditating isn't in narrative form. So trying to note tone, etc., often leads to frustration and takes me away from allowing. Can you speak to working with feelings that are related to pre-verbal experience? Noting without words. I think this is really um, a great question in a lot of ways because um, 
words and language have a lot of limitations. You know, they can kind of point to something, but not really. The direct experience um, can't really be captured in words. Often they say the experience of nibbana or enlightenment. You, no word can describe it. To even try to describe it is completely far from it. You know, in some way. So. This experience of meditation, it's not a conceptual game. You know, we're not just this, this, labeling, thinking we understand things. Oftentimes, I, I would agree that sometimes labels can take us away from, you know, an experience. I had one teacher who gave me an instruction one time to go on a walk and rename everything that I saw. So the tree was the shoe, you know, the sky was the water, and just what it did was it made me look at everything deeply without having this idea that I know what it is. You know, it made me explore things from a different level. What actually is this? It's color and, and it's, it's all the nuances of something. Um, so I would drop that, the noting, trying to figure out if it feels confusing, it feels counterintuitive. Like I said earlier in this morning, these are often just techniques, you know, ways of uh, training the mind. And those ways are different for everybody. There's a, I think the Buddha gave, I don't know, what is it, Joseph, how many objects of meditation or types of meditation? 40, yeah, 40 different objects and ways that you could concentrate your mind based on personality types, background, you know, some were visual, some were audio, some were feeling. Uh, and so it's not to put everybody in a box and say, hey, this works for everybody. It's to figure out, in some way, beauty of being on retreat is figuring out, oh, I'm, I intuit things intuitively. You know, I feel my way through. And that's an insight. So your practice will look a little different. It's the practice, but it'll come differently. It'll feel differently. And I think that um, you can celebrate that. You know, you can feel uh, joyful in that. And just one more thing to say. That in some way, these pre-verbal ways of being are indigenous, <laughs> you know, that we can, in this field of this room right now, we communicate all the time without saying one word. And in one way, we all know each other. There's a sense of, you know, just sitting and walking and seeing people in the morning and, you know, we know there's a way in which we can communicate and feel on many different levels and that that is kind of died out in our Western culture, you know, that we can feel and, and sense things. Uh, so I celebrate that in a way, of a sort of a return to the natural world. Um, last summer I spent a month in the Peruvian Amazon studying with a tribe of people called the Shipibos. And they don't say that much. <laughs> they sit and they observe and they feel. You know, when they communicate, you know, they share. And it's and powerful, but often they say, just sit and listen to the jungle. Listen to the wind. Feel. You know, so there's something to that uh, that's very profound. So.
celebrate the diversity of our experience and our ways of experiencing the Dharma. It's powerful. Can you talk about a purification practice? Is there a book that you can recommend? <laughs> yes. <laughs> really, we can understand everything we're doing as being <clears throat> a practice of purification. Purification of what? It's purification of the habit of greed and clinging, of the habit of aversion, of the habit of delusion. That, that's what we're purifying our minds and hearts of. How do we do that? Exactly in the way that we've been practicing. And this is the tremendous power uh, of mindfulness. Because these habit patterns of mind are going to be there. I mean, we've, I'm sure you've all seen many moments where the mind is grasping at something or pushing something away, liking, not liking, or forgetting, just being deluded about what's happening. And yet in the moment of being mindful, both of the initial object, and so the desire or aversion doesn't arise, but also mindful of those tendencies. We see grasping, and instead of being lost in it or identified with it, we're mindful of it. Oh. Grasping, aversion. Notice the difference in your experience between times when we're lost in those patterns, identified with them, taking them to be self, which is much of the time. And then notice what it's like in your experience when that same pattern is there, but we're mindful of it. It's like then it's arising in space. I forget the exact quote from last night, but it was something like, when we don't cling, whatever arises is naturally freed. It's such a beautiful and simple statement of the whole practice of purification. You know, if desire arises, if aversion arises, and we don't cling, that very state is naturally freed. There's a, there's a phrase in Tibetan Buddhism <coughs> which says, talks about how thoughts self-liberate. And what does that mean? It means that when we're lost in a thought, it has this, this huge reality in our lives. We really... Thoughts are like little dictators of the mind. <laughs> they are, you know, they're, they're dictators. And they just do this, do that, go here, go there. And it's, their advice is not always that great. <laughs> And yet, in the moment of being mindful of a thought, we see that in its nature, the nature of a thought, there's hardly anything there. It's like this little puff of energy. There's a thought, and, and when, when we're mindful, the thought is there, and it self-liberates. We don't have to do anything about it. We don't have to push it away or get rid of it. 
the mindfulness itself. It's there, we see its empty nature, and it dissolves. So this is all the purification of mind from the unwholesome patterns, you know, and habits that we all, that we all have. In terms of books, <laughs> actually on the last day, <coughs> you probably remember when you registered <coughs> in what we call the welcome room, there are lots of books uh, there. And we'll also have a reading list, you know, of suggested. So there's a lot. I mean, there's <coughs> especially now many, many Dharma books available. And Joseph's written one or two. Can you talk about mindful eating? That's really great because we actually haven't um, offered that practice formally um, in this retreat. And, and the continuity of our practice invites us into being mindful of this very profound activity of sustaining ourselves. That, you know, I think I was mentioning earlier in the retreat that that mindfulness is really learning not to take our life for granted. And how often do you take your meal for granted? How often do you take for granted that you, more than most people in this world, can put food on your table and also choose the kind of food that we place in front of us? And so, when that first bite comes into your consciousness, what is that explosion of sensory experience? Because it will be brilliant. It's like, you know, when the, when the sun uh, parts from this morning fog that sometimes comes at IMS, it's brilliant. And then watching, just like you watch the breath, from the inception across the length and it begins to taper, that taste will begin to taper. And then the next bite, the second bite, will be slightly different. Maybe it won't have that initial brilliance to it. Or maybe you'll choose another one of the amazing dishes that is being prepared for us. So really to savor each of those sensations, just like we're inviting you to look into some of the more physically uncomfortable sensations of your sitting practice, the eating practice is really an invitation into joy. So, you know, again, to, to notice the sensations from moment to moment, be kind of conscious of time, because if you do it too slow, you'll be eating at three o'clock. So, um, and that affects all the yogi jobs in the kitchen. But to at least take a portion of your meal and really experience it, because in our life, I don't know about you, but often I'm eating <coughs> the computer terminal, I'm eating the conversation I'm having with someone, I'm eating the newspaper, but I'm not eating the meal, even though food's coming into my mouth. 
So it's an invitation to an experience that can actually strengthen your capacity to be aware. And one last invitation is, um, one of the invitations is to stop eating five bites from full. And I know some of you have heard me say this in the past. So how do you do that? You can only do that if you're aware of your experience. That, that Because when we're not aware, we're usually eating 50 bites beyond the sensation of fullness. Because we're eating into our desire and not what we need. What if we ate and consumed to the level that we needed and then stopped so that you would buy your clothes five bites from full or that you would use your cars five bites from full or we would collectively use our resources five bites from full. It would transform the world. This is, again, where the personal practice is just a template for how we live together in an enlightened world, not just an enlightened life. So I know I riffed a little bit about the question, but it's such a, such a beautiful question. I often find myself in a right-wrong, good-bad dichotomy when I meditate. I have tried watching these judgments, and that is helpful, but the judgments still feel real. What is the way out? How can they not feel real on an experiential level? So I'm assuming by um, the word real that the questioner thought that is, is using real uh, as, an, as a synonym for, um, for true, that the judgments are true. So what is the way out and how can they not feel real on an experiential level? So Whatever we, whatever we experience when we're meditating is not different than what we experience when we are going through our lives not meditating. So when we see judgment in the mind coming up uh, on the, when we're on the cushion, it's, these judgments are also coming up in, in, in daily life. The difference is that in daily life, we're, we're usually, as Joseph was saying just now, Following, following the dictates of the mind. So, you know, um, we have a judgment about someone. We, you know, we, we think that what they're doing is wrong. Like, you know, somebody walks into the meditation hall and their steps are a little bit heavier than we would like. And suddenly, you know, the way this person walks is everything about them, right? 
so you know, and, and obviously this is wrong and they should be doing it differently and don't they know we're meditating and you know, you know, you know, you know the story. And so being caught in that, um, we can go, as Joseph was talking about on, in, in his talk uh, last night, on that train of associations where we don't know where we hopped on and we have no idea where they're going, but we're right in that train, right? We're right on it. And we're, we're, we're believing everything that is being said in the mind about uh, whatever it was that we experienced. Now, the question is, what happened, right? So what happened was you were sitting there with your eyes closed and being aware of whatever it was you were being aware of, and then a sound happened. That's all that happened, right? Sound, hearing, hearing, hearing. So there was, an, there was a sound being made which was, became the predominant object in your, uh, in your awareness. And that sound hit, uh, contacted the ear. And through that contact, there was hearing. And if we are uh, mindful right in that moment, we can simply notice hearing. And we can even, as long as the hearing is present, we can even follow uh, the sound until it disappears. And then come back to whatever, either the breath or whatever next arises as the predominant object. If we're not doing that, what happens is the mind has an in. Right? The, the thinking mind has an in to that experience. And the opinion immediately arises about whether it's right or it's wrong or it's good or it's bad or it should be here or it shouldn't happen or it should happen another way or why did it happen or whatever the, 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 the um, thinking is in the mind. And, we, and if we're not mindful when that arises, then we follow it but there is always an opportunity at that moment to simply notice the judgment that's arising in the mind. That can become the next predominant object, right? So it's not as if there isn't an opportunity right in that moment when the judgment arises for us to simply turn our attention, because our attention to, to that which is arising in the mind. Because as, as I think we've mentioned before, and as you know, in, in Buddhist thought, there are six sense doors. So there are the eyes and the ears and the nose and the mouth and the skin and, and then the, uh, the mind. So, so whatever is arising at any, whatever is contacting those six sense doors is capable of being known. And if we know them, it's not a problem. If, and so if, if, if the mind produces a thought, and it's simply being known, that's also not a problem, even if it's good or bad or judgment or right or wrong. So that's the, um, so it's not so much that we're watching the judgment, because again, as Joseph said in his talk last night, uh, when we use the word watching, it feels almost as if there's a, you know, the object is here and the eyes are kind of grabbing onto whatever the object is. But it's actually just knowing from the inside that this is arising. So it, it's, not a, 
you know, we're not sort of grabbing onto it like a tractor beam, but actually seeing the arising of the judgment and simply knowing it. And so when, the, when mindfulness receives this experience, there, it, it simply arises and passes away like any other sense experience. And so if we, if, if we pay attention, we'll see that, that it has no substance. It's, it came out of the void and it will go back into the void if, we, if it's simply known. It's when we, gra- when we grab onto it and believe it that it, that it, uh, it grabs hold of us. Okay, this one says, greetings, Kian. You please comment on the role of self-talk. For instance, during my walking meditation, I find myself surrounded by mosquitoes and flies. My response is to have a conversation with myself on whether I should respond physically (laughs) or I should disengage and focus on my breathing. I hope that I don't get a bit get bit, very unlikely, or kill the mosquitoes. In the larger context of life, when is it appropriate to do self-talk without it taking the place of focusing on one's breath? Hmm. Well, I think some ways, this is a, it's an interesting question. It's kind of a two-part question, right? How do I respond? Uh, in a situation that's unpleasant. And we've all had this one, right? We're outside and there's flies and mosquitoes buzzing around and we just want to walk in the woods and you know, and we don't want to harm them. Um, so in that situation, um, we just do our best to not cause harm. You know, in some ways, you know, we are going to hurt things, we are going to kill things. And it's just to be aware, you know, of that. To, to have some awareness, I had a, and then I'll move on to the second part of the question, but I had a, uh, my sister brought uh, two cats home that were strays and they had fleas. And within a short period of time, our house was just a flea infestation. It was a, like a flea circus in there. I mean, we couldn't believe it. And we were thinking, oh, we need to call someone. You know, we, because they bite me. You're like crazy, they bite me. I was finding them all over. And um, I was having to kill them. And I would kill each flea that would, you know, bite me and jump on me with a sense of mindfulness, and I would send a little prayer, you know. And at one point, it got so bad, we had to call someone. You know, our house was also a place where people gathered and met. They were getting fleas bitten, and, and it was becoming out of control, you know. And we waited a long, too long because both of us have this vow uh, of nonviolence. And we, like, kill the fleas. What to do with the fleas? The fleas. We stopped wanting to come home because there was fleas everywhere. <laughs> Like, oh, the cats were scratching. Finally, we just took control of the situation. You know, we just said, please, we're really sorry, and this has just got to happen. This is true. And we got the medicine for them that killed the fleas, and then we got uh, somebody who came and sprayed, and they were gone after that. Um, but it's, I think what it was is that I did it with a lot of consciousness and 
And I did it with a sense of um, awareness that I've, I'm taking life. You know, even a flea has a right to exist. And so how can we work with things that are annoying? The ants in our house, I remember a long time ago, IMS struggled with mice, that they waited, you know, one mouse turns into 20 if you don't do anything. And it was agonizing, and I remember there was like board meetings about it, and like, oh, can we catch them? And, you know, and so it's to just, at least to be thinking on that level, like we don't want to cause harm, and everything that exists has a right to exist, even if it's in our, our way, you know, in some level. So I just want to say we just do our best, you know, we just do our very best. And if we harm something, if we spot a mosquito and it gets killed, we just, you know, say a little prayer. Um, and then we just try, you know, try to have some awareness about it. Um, yeah, so that's the first thing. Um, the second is about uh, should I disengage and focus on my breathing? So that, actually, that's another part of the question. The, the one is about the self-talk. I think the self-talk is really important when it's productive. At some point, when you leave this retreat, you're going to have your own inner Dharma teacher, right? So then say, wake up. What's happening? Pay attention. Come back to the breath. What are you doing? You know, you're going to be coaching yourself. And that is important. That needs to happen. That needs to, um, that is happening, I'm sure, many levels already. Um, but that's an important thing, and so in some way you have to learn to be your own champion, you know, and sometimes self-talk is really helpful if it's the thread, especially, you know, we try to teach the metta so that self-talk comes through a kind, clear, loving, you know, loving communication, you know, so I think the self-talk is really important um, and helpful when it's leading us towards mindfulness. The self-talk that's not helpful is the judgments, the criticism, the negativity, not so helpful, right? Uh, so we work. Mindfulness helps us navigate those two roads. We see clearly what's not helpful and what is helpful in any moment. Uh, so I often do a lot of self-talk on retreats, especially if I'm suffering. You know, I used to use this image of a wise old woman inside of me who would say, it's okay, honey. <laughs> you know, I, it was a little crazy sounding, but it would work. It was, a, it was the part of me that could take care of the situation. Like, you can be with this. Let's take another step. You know, let's open to what's happening here. You know, so there's a part of us that is, it, we can start to do that. It's a kind of a self-compassion. Um, also, not to use our breath or meditation to push out experience. That's another kind of point of this question. You know, annoyance is coming, uh, mosquitoes buzzing, back to the breath, lock onto the breath, push it all out. That's not so helpful either, right? It's to just stop, notice aversion is happening. This is unpleasant. There's a mosquito on my eye. You know, I don't, I don't like the situation here, right? To actually acknowledge what's happening instead of getting in the habit of repressing right, to grind down and try to refocus on something else. Um, you know, so we acknowledge aversion. Let's feel that for a moment, you know. And then we come back to the breath after we've <coughs> actually noted or become aware of what's happening. Um, so 
I think that's all I have to say on that one. <laughs> yeah, good luck. <laughs>
on a deeper level, or the root of that, really has to do with um, <clears throat> this unwholesome tendency in the mind that in Buddhism, the, the jargon is, <coughs> we call these unskillful patterns defilements of mind. The Pali word is kalesa, like greed or hatred or pride, things like that. Well, one of the defilements that is not uprooted until full enlightenment, even after we purify the mind of desire and aversion, which would be a huge thing. I mean, that, that's a very advanced state when we're free of that. But even beyond that is this pattern, which the Pali word is mana, and it's usually translated as conceit, but it's conceit in a particular sense, not the conceit as we use in English, I'm so great. Conceit here is just that sense of I am, the I amness, right? And so it could be, I'm worse than. You know, when we're comparing ourselves with others and we feel unworthy, that's a kind of conceit because it's an I amness in a negative way. It could be an equality, I'm the same as, still an I am. Could be, I'm better than. That tendency, that pattern, is very deeply rooted. So we need to make friends with it. Uh, a story I shared, I think, in, in one of the discussion groups, just about the power of this pattern. Uh, I was driving back from New York one time I, uh, with some friends. We were driving back, we were having a nice conversation, and then this thought came, this self-referential thought came to say that had nothing to do with what we were talking about. It was just an I am thought. It was like, here I am. And we were just sitting next to each other in the car. <laughs> so there was really absolutely no need to say it. It had no relevance to anything. But it was so strong. The thought came to say it, but I saw it. Oh, that's, that's mana, that's conceit. It's just this defilement. I let it go. And 10 seconds later, the thought was there again. Let it go. 10 seconds later, the thought was there again. Let it go. I don't know, maybe 15 times. And then I said it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a tremendous lesson in the power of that pattern. <laughs> I began to see why it's not uprooted until full enlightenment, because it just, oh. And as I said to the group, it, it's like, it felt like I was pregnant with conceit and it had to give birth. <laughs> yeah, just the force <laughs> pushing it out. So, I say this by way of suggesting it's going to be around, this I am feeling. We want to make friends with it, you know, so we're not judging ourselves for the fact that it arises, but then also practicing seeing it and seeing if at times at least we can practice not siding with ourselves, you know, just stepping out and seeing things from another point of view. So that's our practice with it. I don't know if this is going to be fair because we're not, I'm not sure we're going to get through a whole 
<laughs> well, actually, this is for Joseph, but it's kind of long. <laughs> There's prerogative up here. <laughs> it easier to love others unconditionally than to love yourself unconditionally? How do you learn to forgive yourself? Let go of that feeling of being a failure. I can tell by that verbal response that it hits, it lands. and feel that collective landing because it's a cultural experience. It is so deeply conditioned in our culture. And so if it arises in your experience to notice it but not blame yourself even further, because in some way, it's not personal. There are forces that actually are conditioning us to feel less than. And it's not part of the human condition. And so there's that story, I think Joseph may have been there, I'm not sure, but um, there was a, a, a meeting in Dharamsala with His Holiness, a lot of the Western teachers, and, and from what I heard, one of the questions, uh, this was um, early in the, in the years of, of Western teachers offering the Dharma in the West, and the question was to His Holiness, um, how do you teach the Dharma to... Um, to people who have such self-loathing or self-judgment or um, such low self-esteem. And so the translator s spoke this question to His Holiness and then spoke it again to His Holiness. And then they had a conversation over a couple of minutes. And finally, His Holiness understood the question because he didn't understand what low self-esteem was. Mm. And he turned to his audience and said, it's just not true. And so within his cultural context, it wasn't as deeply conditioned as it is in ours. So to know that possibility and that to know that a lot of the messages that we get in, in our education, in our advertising, especially in the news, is about how you're inadequate. It's not enough. We're not enough. And it's just not true. And so we practice this mindfulness, which is, which is in and of itself meeting the moment of our lives without judgment. 
not pushing it away because we don't like it, not wanting more of it because we want more of it because it's pleasant. And that is the kindness of love. So I'm going to extrapolate a little bit. This is the love that we look for in all the other places. And this is the love that we can actually give ourselves in each moment. Filling that, that reservoir that we can unconditionally be with everyone else. Because actually, my experience is that it's, it's, it's not that possible to love unconditionally without my heart being full, because I'll burn out. And so it's, it's, it's for the benefit of all beings, for the benefit of others, as well as the benefit. And so all beings does not exclude this person. And this is the power of this mindfulness practice and, and why it's so woven into the loving-kindness practice. Deepama was asked once, what's the difference between mindfulness and loving-kindness? And she said, in her experience, there is none. She was one of the sort of very highly realized practitioners and teachers from, uh, I think, Bangladesh? Hmm? Calcutta? Yeah and taught here many times. So, um, so even though intellectually, to, to let the words sink in, it's just not true. And then to experience it directly in your practice. It's, a, it's, the sa- it's almost the same question yeah. as the one you just answered, so I didn't want to. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In many ways, preferences, likes and dislikes, enable us to make decisions and lead meaningful lives. They give us a reason to get up in the morning. They may have led us to practicing Buddha's path to freedom. In some cases, likes and dislikes are essential for survival. Are we supposed to eliminate all of these preferences to reach enlightenment? So what happens with the, um, with the instructions often is that when we talk about uh, the, the, uh, the grasping at pleasant and the pushing away of unpleasant and the ignoring of, uh, of neither pleasant nor unpleasant, 
the mind somehow turns that into, I shouldn't, right? As if there is a, an edict that says, if you have likes and dislikes, then you'll never be enlightened. And we, we tend to miss some of the nuances of the teaching. So the, the second noble truth that Spring talked about, that suffering comes from clinging, is really what's being referred to. It's not a, um, an unconditional uh, law that you should be a, a kind of flat-lined personality with absolutely no likes, absolutely no dislikes, absolutely no preferences. Good luck with that, right? <laughs> if, you're, if that's where you're trying to come to, then uh, you know, we, you're, we're trying to be something other than we are. And the paradox, I think, of, of the practice and the fruit of the practice is that uh, the more we open, the more we become truly who we are. So it's not about repressing our likes or repressing our dislikes, but actually seeing what leads to suffering and what leads to freedom from suffering. And usually, if we, if we are looking deeply, what we will see, it's not the like. We, it's, it's perfectly fine to like something. It's when we think that our happiness depends on getting that thing. It's not when it's not because the like or the preference arises in our mind stream, but the um, the the momentum or the, the 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 push then for I must have, and uh, that my life depends on or my happiness depends on getting this thing that I prefer, and and which then gets translated into uh, my life should be this way and it shouldn't be that way. And I, it, if, it's, if it's this way, I can't be happy. And unless I get something that isn't here, then I won't be happy. And that's when what's happening is there's clinging in the mind, and that is what leads to suffering. And yes, so the, um, the impulse to freedom is a recognition of the first noble truth that Larry talked about that there is stress, there is dukkha, there is suffering, there is unsatisfactoriness. And the, and the recognition of that leads us to seek um, another way. And so it's not so much that there is a liking or a disliking or a preference for this over a preference for that, but actually a wisdom that dawns when we do see that uh, certain uh, certain ways of behaving, certain ways of thinking lead to suffering, and other ways of behaving and, and uh, thinking lead uh, to happiness or to the, to the freedom from suffering. And it's a, I, I like the question because I think it, it also covers implicitly some other questions that we got in the basket about um, Joseph's talk about no self and how that bears on uh, the injustices in the world and how we can be activists if we have no preferences or we have no likes or we have no dislikes and everything is okay. 
And, and so that's, a, that's a, a, a reading of the teachings that kind of makes everything a kind of gray color and that there is no, there is no um, understanding of, of the nuances under that, that uh, we're not, that somebody asked about us being uh, warriors and not, you know, how, how, how did we um, avoid being passive? Because they, I think the question was that uh, Buddhists are, are passive, but we, we as teachers appear not to be passive. And how did, how did we develop any kind of warrior spirit? Well, one of the things that Joseph talked about in his talk last night, which I, I think is a really important aspect of, of practice and, and of looking at our lives and understanding suffering and the, and the freedom from suffering, is that we, um, we have appropriate response. So when we're open, aware, mindful and developing wisdom in our lives, whatever happens, whatever is in front of us, uh, gets a, an appropriate response. And it gets an appropriate response because the mind is clear, the heart responds with loving kindness and compassion. And as he said last night in his talk, that loving kindness and compassion is not something that we fabricate. It's not as if we say, oh, we should be kind and compassionate. But that when the mind is clear and the heart is cultivated, that's the response that happens. So if there's injustice in the world and there is a possibility, there is a, 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 a way of responding to that injustice to correct it, and we are the ones that are required to do it, then we do it. But, the, but, but what's important is that we're doing it not out of aversion, not out of hatred, not out of revenge. We're not seeking anything other than correcting all of the conditions that lead to that injustice. And, and of course, we're doing that in a way where we're not attached to some particular outcome. But right now in this moment, what is required, and we do what is required, letting go, not clinging to, not preferring any uh, outcome. Because sometimes when we have an expectation of an outcome, not only does it cause our, our suffering, because we don't have control most of the time of how things are gonna turn out, but also because we sometimes just have a small view of what's possible. And so when we're forcing things to happen in a particular way, we miss all of the potential of that moment and all of the potential of what can happen by that kind of um, appropriate response. So Buddhism, or the, the practice of Dharma, I have found in my own life has... Um, has given me a, a kind of courage um, and a clarity that allows me to respond appropriately and allows me to be a lot more of an activist than I was before I was practicing. So, so I hope that I hope that that clarifies for you um, that this is not for wimps, right? 
you know, and you've probably gotten that in the, you know, in, in these last few days anyway, you know, that, that to do this practice is, it's not a small thing. It's not as, it's not, an, it's not as easy as it sounds, uh, but then you've probably already noticed shifts in your own awareness, shifts in your own uh, relationship to uh, what is coming up in the mind and the body. And so we're not trying to get rid of, we're not trying to make something other than it is, but trying to see as clearly as we possibly can so that when we respond, the response is completely appropriate. And I think that's all we have time for. Thank you so much for your attention and it's time for walking. Why don't we just Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.